Fantastic. Someone walked over my grave. Ooh. Oh, right. Was, what did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Someone walked over my grave. How do you know? The sweatiest of laughs. Is that Me how too. you know? Someone walked yeah, over your grave. You know when what my ass is sweating. How do you know? You know when shiver. when you shiver. Oh, that's is that what sweating. happens? Yeah. So like when you go red, someone's talking about you. No, that's when your ears are your burning. ears go red. No, that's not a thing. Isn't <laughs> your ears go burning red? Ears. <laughs> out, but aren't out. burning ears red ears? Well, I think it's like, oh, your ears are burning. But it doesn't mean I don't necessarily think your ears are... Maybe it but is. But the manifestation of a burning ear is a red ear. Like, otherwise, how would you know someone's ears were burning? On fire. In the same way that I don't think someone <laughs> has genuinely... <laughs> Can you smell burning? Can you see flamey ears? <laughs> if, if, I don't think your if someone has fire. actually walked over your grave I don't think your ears actually have to go no there. but I like the idea that someone is walking over the plot of land that will be my grave but what I if you like get the idea of someone's ears on yeah, fire okay. what if you're lost at sea well, they could yeah. be sailing over I suppose mm. swimming <laughs> or it's a merman naughty right enough of this tomfoolery A is for anything B for baby blue C is classy, clams and clogs. D for doggy doos. T is easy. F for flange. For gannon. H for ham. I for idiot. You're an idiot. I'm an idiot. Jerry. K is kooky. L for lads. Lager ladies. Lads, lads, lads. M for mummy. N for knock knock. Who's there? We pee who? Here come Q, U for ugly. V for Venus. W for W. X is hard to comprehend. Why can't I just reach the end? Z for zebra. Zinc and zany. Zabaglioni. Zip zucchini. Zoom and zoom and zippling to the alphabet is really cool. Well, here we are, the yes. last of the series. Yeah. Letter J for Jolly Good Times. <laughs> okay, well, I'm kicking us off. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, for my J, my palms are sweating. Knees weak. Um, Mum's spaghetti. spaghetti. I am going to do... Well, it started, as you both know, as jury duty, but it's sort of just morphed into the history of the English justice system. Excellent. So I'll kick us off... Actually, you know what I'll kick us off with is a good fact about... So as you both know, Gina, you mostly, because you've done it, and I really want to talk to you about that, but anyone can get called for jury duty. Absolutely anyone. Including... Gigi Hadid a good list of celebrities and she was brought in as a potential juror for Harvey Weinstein wow no. yeah you gotta wonder was that an accident like it, it, how it did be. someone so high profile get involved in such a high profile case well in the UK it is literally just picked completely at random I, and I think it's I think the US mirrors that mm. process surely she would have yeah, and bumped around with Harvey. Mm. So she's at parties. Yeah, you're right, Marie. She said she had to testify that she had met him before, but she said I'm still able to keep an open mind on the facts. That's yeah. weird that the jury is selected prior to the trial. Yeah, and then and then you're called. So there's more people that are in in the UK at least. All of what I've researched relates specifically to the UK, but they pick more jurors than the 12 get pulled out as it were and then you all go into a room and your name gets called again randomly out of a hat as mm. it were so oh. and then the 12 get selected from that bunch the so 12. it is d12 great yeah, that's what program. happened we there was like 20 people called to the room and then 
names called out 12 names and then if you then had a problem like Gigi being like I've met this person you had to walk up to the judge and say I can't do this because xyz exactly exactly and then the judge gets to decide <gasps> classic judge yeah there's loads of really good ones but I'll just stick with these two and my were my favorites Gigi and Brad and Brad was um, Brad Pitt, of course. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Could you just clarify? <laughs> I forget. Brad. I forget that you guys don't know him. Um, Brad was dismissed from a 2014 jury because he was deemed too much of a distraction to the other jurors. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what the Vogue article says. <laughs> <laughs> um, but well, well, Gina, maybe what were you called for jury duty? On what was Gina the, Miller? What was the case? <laughs> <laughs> it was a manslaughter case, mm. and basically one or two days into the trial, after like all the witnesses had spoken and been cross-examined and stuff, we were told we were dismissed and then brought back the next morning. And they basically the judge said this is a really unusual thing, but based on all of the evidence we've heard, we have decided it is objectively impossible for you to convict this man of being guilty for the crime he's alleged to have committed and basically we order you to say he's innocent and then they just what's it called the foreman they were like they just pointed at at one person like you're the foreman stand up say he's not guilty wow and that was it what would you have what would you have voted for (laughs) I was thrilled with the outcome because from quite early on I was like this it was just a really horrendous accident that's what it seemed like but it was interesting all of the kind of minor differences in the different witnesses reports just show you how entrenched our biases are Mm. and how without realizing it you start to justify things in your own mind according to your worldview completely and that's why i kind of ended up feeling like the whole system is so fallible because everyone there if you're not writing down everything you're hearing the differences are so minute that you're not going to remember what really the difference was between one witness and another's yeah. statement. Yeah. And it's it's just crazy. Uh, that, that, I think that's why I've always been really fascinated by it and I really want to get called to do it just because I find this kind of thing really interesting. But I'm also like, how can it ever be unbiased? Like, I can't get my head around how 12 completely average people have that responsibility of sending someone to prison yeah. or like convicting someone of a because that's the thing as you said like there's no it's meant to be the least biased way but obviously historically like there have been so many cases where it's so obvious particularly with stuff around race like that it's completely biased and yeah. if you have like an all white jury for example that's immediately like that shouldn't be allowed mm. it's just crazy it's crazy and and I, and I think probably nowadays it's better but that's why I find it so fascinating. Mm. So as kind of Gina's basically actually explained quite well already the, the role of the jury today, but for those who don't know, it's basically 12 people. You're picked from the electoral register anywhere between the age of 18 and 75. And the fact that it's picked completely at random is meant to try and mean that it represents a cross-section of society and reduce the most amount of bias possible. But obviously, as we know... I'm not sure if that works, but I don't know how else you do it either. So yeah. And then the main big thing that I find really interesting about it is that the trial can go for as long as it goes, as it were. The the, the average is like ten days, but the longest ever recorded trial in the UK has lasted for twenty months. I think it was like a really complicated case of Jeez. property fraud. Edwin McLaren. Do anyone remember that one? I don't. 
No. It was so boring. So boring. Yeah, so all these people couldn't, like, do their jobs at yeah. all. For 20, they were told it was going to be six months, and then it ended up being 20 months long. Um, Woof. But the big thing is that when you're deliberating on your verdict, well, throughout the whole trial, but you're obviously not, it's, like, deeply illegal to be influenced by any outside information, and you're not allowed to discuss the trial with anyone except your fellow jurors, and if anyone approaches you and is like, give us the goss, you have to declare it straight away. But how... Now with phones and stuff, how the hell do they stop people from looking up the trial? That's what I want to know. Court reporting's a whole thing, isn't it? There's like lots and lots of rules around it that make it different to other types of reporting, I think. I tried to start doing a court reporting course once and got very bored <laughs> in the first lesson. <laughs> so I didn't do it. I always think it'd be quite cool to be one of those um, court illustrators. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, that's a... That's a really cool job. Because that's when they can't have photographers. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, there's one lady who's doing the, what's the, Jelaine Maxwell. Is oh, that how yeah. you say her name? Because everyone always takes a piss out of me. Do you know what? Jelaine, I, know I, think it Jelaine. Is Jelaine. I have yeah. no idea. Who, and she's done a lot of drawings for like loads of different trials, um, all these different characters, and was saying that like, that Jelaine sort of like looks at her and like poses for her and stuff, and like, oh, winks weird. at her and like talks to her. But she was like, actually loads of them do do it. And just, she, she said it makes her job a lot more interesting and fun because she has someone who's literally posing for her to draw but that sounds mildly psychotic for me when you're being like tried for like abuse of minors and <laughs> like oh just have a little wink at the uh, court drawer but also like wouldn't it just take someone with that disposition to abuse minors in the first place what to be kind of like to be like the winker well, that, I think it's that thing that. of like I'm above I'm above anything yeah mm. oh, you won't get me or whatever but yeah. yeah but what an interesting job to sit in there and how do you get into sketch that sketch everyone god knows you gotta go through this sort of security at the front of the court <laughs> <laughs> Low hanging fruit. Yeah. <laughs> I always pick that. <laughs> God, imagine though, if you were, imagine imagine if you get shut up in a hotel room with like your number one enemy. Wait, but you wouldn't be in a hotel room. No, but You'd say with the, <laughs> no, but, but you have to spend so much time with each other. Yeah. Say, say it went on for 20 months Oof. and then you're there with like your ex-girlfriend. That would be bad. Yeah. So bad. But maybe that would be a thing, actually, that you'd say, look, I know this person. Oh, maybe. Maybe you'd have to declare that, yeah. Because people could become accomplices to each other. If, if you knew anyone on the jury, that could be a problem. But then yeah. you could probably get to that level if it'd been going on for 20 months. What, like become girlfriends? Oh, yeah. maybe, yeah. Sexy. Oh, guys, I don't stop getting so maybe excited. Maybe that's how I'm going to meet someone new. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a great film. Oh, what a good story. So yeah. naughty. Copyright. Yeah. 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 The first uh, A is for production. What would it be called? <laughs> Courtroom drama. <laughs> Courtroom drama is oh, very what? good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm on oh. fire. <laughs> um, Jerry Fruity. <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, I like Jerry Fruity. Approach the wench. <laughs> Excellent. Really good. Yeah. Oh, that's the that's really good. Marika, who's your worst? Who would I least want to be on a jury? A jury, a with? jury. <laughs> oh, you know, I was having a think, and then I forgot to carry on having a think. You know, do you have anyone? On the I top have of your head? the same problem as Marika, but I did instantly think of. I was just thinking of Amanda Holden. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Amanda. <laughs> Oh my God. Who will be listening? Why don't you want to be on a jury with Amanda Holden? What's she ever done to you? She's never done anything to me, but you know, 
the British public. No, I'm joking. I can imagine her bringing <laughs> snacks, though. Well, like, you know, Piers Morgan would suck. Oh, yeah. Fuck. Yes. I don't want to spend any time with that man. I think anyone loud and boring. I was going in my brain for someone akin to, like, Janice from Friends, that kind of comes in and just, like, chats. But, yeah, I think, I feel like, I mean, I've never done Jury Duty, but from watching it on Sex and the City, it feels like you have a lot of time to sort of just, like, sit and reflect and if you had anyone trying to talk to you in any of those like moments of like admin or anything I would find it really irritating yeah actually that was the the first day so you go along and then you're in this big holding area which is kind of like a school canteen but without the food but there is some food I think and then everyone's sitting there you're just waiting to be called and then you might get called to a courtroom but not be called for the case and so you all get thrown back into this holding room Amanda and the holding room Amanda the holding room <laughs> and obviously any normal person just wants to avoid conversation in that situation so yeah. I just like stuck my head in a book upside down other people around me were, were very keen on getting chatty and kind of like oh this is my third time here Braggy. three times third. one of that's the women that's not fair I don't want to go and um, I had a female judge called Wendy who was I think she's probably the only female judge at the Old Bailey and she was formidable and this person turned up late one day one of my fellow jurors so we only arrived in the courtroom like 15 minutes late and Wendy kicked off proceedings <gasps> by looking at the jury and saying you have just cost the British public £3,000 oh my god I was like oh <laughs> that is so good Wendy love Wendy um, so how did we get to the system that we have now? I hear you cry. Um, it all started in the Anglo-Saxon times in England during the Viking occupation. This made me laugh, this little quote. It said, The Scandinavians, when not on the Viking warpath, were a litigious people and loved to get together in the thing, which was their, like, legal assembly. The thing? It's just called the thing. <laughs> yeah. Genuinely, that was the name of it. And because they had no professional lawyers or anything like that, they picked people who were like well mainly people who could read and write and people who were learned in like folk custom and that's kind of how it started they just picked 12 lawmen who weren't in any way lawmen and they were judged they were the people who judged anyone who'd done a crime and that's basically how the basis of our entire justice system started the king at the time Ethelred the Unready yes which as I was researching, I thought to myself, why was he always unready? And actually, nothing to do with that. It just means that unready means poorly advised in Latin. Ah. But he issued a legal code that said that the 12 leading minor nobles of each district were required to swear that they would investigate crimes without bias. And then that was kind of where it kicked off. But what's crazy is that there was no lawyers or barristers or anything like that so the juries were self-informing so they had to go and find out all the information themselves and then make a, oh make a decision oh based on God. that <laughs> yeah crazy so funny which is why they tried to make it people who were more intellectual or whatever but it was an absolute fucking shit show from the sound of it um, <laughs> then we get into the middle ages and it gets a little bit confusing but Henry II was a big old name in terms of sowing the seeds of the justice system that we have now and he kind of really cemented the system of 12 men obviously it was always bloody men to settle land disputes that was kind of how it all started then comes the Magna Carta really big one 
It's like Jay-Z's. Exactly. <laughs> Who has been to see a section of the Magna Carta in Salisbury Cathedral. Sorry, Jay-Z has. Jay-Z and Beyonce have been to Salisbury. That's that's exciting news. Let that sink in. Mm. They have been to Salisbury Cathedral. Because the cathedral has one of the four copies left of the Magna Carta, like the real bits. Yeah. I think they split it it with you. Yeah. Jenny took me on a date there. I've not... Marika's seen my Magna Carta. I've not seen the Magna Carta. I've sung in the cathedral, though. Oh, Gina, you must. (laughs) I must. I I actually must. I think I will. (laughs) You must. 20 minutes in the car. Nothing. To see the the oldest trick in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is that what you call yourself? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Oof, you're not going to like this, gals. Up until 1215, there was a truly barbaric system of justice in place called trials by ordeal. Oh, no. Yeah, horrible. A person's guilt or innocence was determined by two types of trial, either fire or water. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And what they had to do, the accused would be forced to, like, pick up a red-hot iron bar barn bar <laughs> a red hot iron bar or like pluck a stone out of a cauldron of boiling water or something equally horribly painful and dangerous all to do with being burnt incredibly badly and if their burns healed naturally then it was thought that God had intervened to protect them and if they like the wounds festered or didn't heal properly which obviously they weren't going to they were guilty and then were killed what so before it killed them they were killed I think so yeah so this is post the first jury this so there's well it's not really jury jury the the, the Magna Carta then came in to stop this from happening okay because basically the the church were obviously really important at that time and the clergy banned anyone from the church sitting on these and judging these trials of ordeal and being present at them and then as soon as the church were like this is really fucked up everyone lost interest in it and were like and then it became outlawed and the Magna Carta came in and said that no one, each man, had a right to be judged without bias by his fellow peers. And that, and then you got the 12, blah, 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 blah. Then, so a lot of the changes that came to the law around juries and how the law had to behave came actually from trials that happened throughout history. So something, something like quite fucked up would happen and then they'd be like, oh, okay, we need to change that law. So there was basically like loads of weird shit that happened in the 12, 1300s but I'm going to skip through that there's a lot of torture going on basically up until 1640 so while you weren't allowed to trial people by ordeal anymore you were still allowed to torture suspects to try and get information out of them again tell me where there's no bias in that Yeah. and then in 1640 basically there was a an archer that was accused of high treason Oh, no, sorry, his name was Archer. He was a glove maker. <laughs> <laughs> Same div. But he was stretched out on that, you know, those racks? The stretcher. Yeah, yeah. On, the, on, the, on the rack city, baby. This all feels very fresh as I went to the London Dungeon oh, just yes, of course. a few months ago. So, yeah. you know, I'm experiencing some real flashbacks right now. You know what? As I was doing this research, I did think, I'm so happy that I don't live in this time. Yeah. I would definitely have been falsely accused of something. No, or or rightly accused, quite frankly. Mm. Perhaps a young prince. (laughs) I would have been the young prince. (laughs) 
Yes, true. Mm, okay, maybe I do want to be a 12th century hunk. Um, <laughs> One or the other, though. Yeah. Either being sort it's, of stretched it's... on a rack or, or high royalty. God. <laughs> Back to the 191670. Sorry? 191670. <laughs> Just 1670. Sorry? I don't think we've got there yet. <laughs> Just 1670. Another big moment. Nowadays, obviously, the jury is left to settle a verdict and you can take as much time as you want to deliberate but this wasn't always the case and this came about because of something that happened in 1670 where the state was clamping down on non-conformist religions and tried to imprison these two Quakers but the jury were like no this is wrong there's nothing wrong has been done here and so the judge imprisoned the entire jury (laughs) didn't give them any food or water until they promised to deliver the guilty verdict that he wanted because he wanted these two Quakers to be put to death and then eventually someone uh, someone higher than the judge intervened and was like this is wrong and that was where the split between it being it's still I think a, a law passed in like 2005 which now means it is completely separate but that was where the beginnings of the separation of just common people to the justice system formed so it's meant to be completely independent the jury from the judging body if that makes sense yeah yes first time a defendant ever took the stand in his own defence was in 1907 because normally it was just felt felt like it was a bad idea but there was this one defence barrister who had a really charismatic client and he was accused of I think he was accused of killing a sex worker um, and everyone thought he was guilty he sounds guilty a charismatic man Mm. who was accused of killing a sex worker that's what I I thought and and the guy the barrister put him on the stand because it was all going so wrong and then he got off because he was so like fucking gaslighty smoothie smooth yeah yeah so another thing wrong with it and then ladies of the jury am I right yes (laughs) up until the 1920s the only reason a woman would ever be in the courtroom was if she were the accused. Or the um, cleaner. Or the cleaner. Before the 1920s, after World War One, and we got the vote, you know, everything started to change a little bit. But before that, it was 100% men. And the first female jurors were sworn in at Bristol Quarter Sessions. It was such a boring case. Trust them to give the women this, like, super dull case. This guy who was accused of stealing parcels at Western Supermare Station. That was a good start. <laughs> there could have been something very exciting in the parcels. That's true, yeah. that's true. What what date was that? What year was it? It was 1920. I've got some very quick fun of, fun of facts for you. And then, we'll, and then I'm done. Fun of facts? Yeah, as in more like... More, more fun? A bit more fun. Just that people have tried various strategies to get out of doing jury duty, including dressing up as the prisoner... <laughs> Mentioning a friendship with Jeffrey Dahmer, who is that horrible oh, yeah. guy. Um, dressing up as Jesus Christ, which I thought was really good. And even writing a fake doctor's note. Um, two good ones. During a 1994 <laughs> murder trial, this is what I got from the 25 shocking but true facts about juries. During a 1994 murder trial, jurors asked a Ouija board if the defendant was guilty when the court found out that the guilty verdict came from a Ouija board that jury was discharged and the whole trial had to be reset oh (laughs) man (laughs) and also this one they could have used the 20 month thing but a three month trial was so boring that jurors started a secret Sudoku challenge (laughs) unaware of the contest the judge complimented the jury for being so attentive and taking such good notes and when they were discovered because someone noticed that they were all taking notes vertically the whole trial had to be reset again (laughs) 
Oh no! Yeah, <laughs> they had to Naughty. be boring trials though for that. Oh. Yeah, probably the bloody women doing this Western supermare parcel Those fee. Those bloody women. Oh, we should never have let women on the jury. No, no. Oh. Is what I've learned. This. <laughs> <laughs> this is a customer announcement. In the event of a correction or addition to our hazy demi facts, please do slide into our DMs, and we will address those in a bonus episode at the end of the series. I had a few regrets whilst researching this, but, you know, hey-ho, let's give it a go. Such is life. Exactly. Indeed. Um, just got to plough on, make the best of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be talking about jet lag. <laughs> Thank you. For the ladies in the back. Um, so I feel like we're all fairly familiar with what jet lag is. I'm not going to do an in-depth rundown of um, the kind of... Ba- well, no, actually, I am, because that's all I can find. <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically, it's caused by the disruption of your body's circadian rhythms, um, which is basically your sleep-wake cycle and how that responds to the environment around you. So it's just kind of your natural inbuilt rhythm of how your hormones are released and when you do, when you eat and go to sleep and things like that. Which then can result in exhaustion, trouble concentrating, exacerbation of mental health problems, indigestion and constipation slash diarrhoea. Blimey. Mm. So, and have you experienced any of those symptoms, particularly the latter? What, from jet lag? <laughs> or just ever? No, from jet lag. <laughs> I'd say the constipation, diarrhoea is more like flying Constipation, yeah, from flying. So... What, emotionally? <laughs> <laughs> no, just like even a one hour flight yeah. might mess with the old bowels well it does for reasons I will explain later (laughs) but jet lag wise yeah I've had mild jet lag I would say yeah I think I've only ever had it once when I was very we went to Australia when I was little yeah and the main my main memory is I just couldn't for the life of me keep my eyes open my parents were like we need to try and stay up till this (laughs) time so that you're not too fucked up the next day and yeah. I was just like yeah easy peasy like I find it really difficult to sleep whatever and was it just like <laughs> within five <laughs> seconds my dad was like fuck's sake <laughs> well I mean that's bloody fair enough yeah you know, you know effectively it's like 4.30 in the morning or something yeah, and you're just yeah. trying to sit upright and stay awake yeah um, I think I had the opposite of that with you in America when I, I fl- flying to LA yes Waking up incredibly early, yeah. Going to the east coast and then traveling back west, so we were incrementally just going like yeah. always into the wrong time zone. So I just woke up at like four a.m. every day. I oh, recall. For a so month. I would always wake up, and you'd be you'd already be up. Oh yeah, every single time. Running around for yeah for five weeks. That's so, and then did you feel really tired in the? That's very tired. Yeah. It's very tired. Yeah, she was out there slinging wares on the merch stand. Yeah, talking to everyone, doing a fantastic job. <laughs> but yeah no exhausting that that also the subtle shifts are actually sometimes more annoying because if it's like you're knocked out by about two hours and you're waking up at like five rather than seven that's quite a big old shift having gotten to bed at like midnight but anyway i digress so i want to just talk about what actually happens to your body when you get on a plane and you fly it contributes to jet lag but it's it's not just the old jet lag um because as i said it's Actually, a fairly boring topic. Um, (laughs) So the drop in cabin pressure when you're at high altitudes um, causes gas in your stomach to expand, which results in bloating and wind. I'll say. Which also, I think, makes you poopy McPooperson at the um, other end. We should have. As in, off the flight. (laughs) (laughs) And the other end. I need to ring the poo bell. (laughs) The poo bell. bell. Put it in the poo bell. Sorry, I always slip into French. (laughs) (laughs) Have you noticed, though, that 
who doesn't smell <laughs> what <laughs> oh i know on, sorry actually i don't really poo on airplanes but like <laughs> farts don't smell on a plane which i think is partly to do with the fact that it's just kind of like expanding gas that's maybe not it's not being caused by something acrid in the gut necessarily <laughs> but also there is a lot of stuff that happens alternatively to your sort of not saying that you taste farts but your taste buds and I imagine what? your nasal cavities so hang on hang on <laughs> oh my gosh so there's all these different there's a lot going there's a lot going on there's a lot to unpack so okay. I'm just gonna I'm gonna plough through um <laughs> So it can also make you feel sick and dizzy, which isn't just because of all the farts flying around, um, which is combined <laughs> with the low air humidity, uh, which is around 20%, and we're used to 40%. And that's because the airplanes recycle the air, but they also combine it with the p- proportion of air from the outside the, of the plane. And because it's so high up, that air like can't hold moisture. So it's just very, very, very dry, dry and stinky. <laughs> stinky? <laughs> well, it's just stinky because it's like recycled air oh, going yeah. like, back and forth. Well, it's the um, chicken and pasta. But also back. because oof, dehydration results in bad breath as well. That's why you get that plain breath. Mm. Um, and it also... <laughs> there's a lot of smells going on on flights. Oh, this is horrible. It, I know, we're never going to fly again. I, I, I barely fly, and this is why. I haven't <laughs> flown in fucking years. It also increases your chances of catching a cold, and that's due to the lack of mucus production. That I, I remember. I remember always getting a cold after flying yeah because you're just you're just dry holes for stuff to fly <laughs> fly into don't need to talk about dry holes <laughs> not the first time I've said that about you um, I got off a plane once and just couldn't speak like I was on the aeroplane and I came off <laughs> for what reason and my voice had gone oh I see I was whispering because of all the dry was, air you can I just couldn't speak it was it was just only happened once but I came off and it was that was it I was like I've been on an aeroplane I'm back now do you think it's with bad ha- breath as well? <laughs> you hadn't spoken. Was it a long haul flight? No, I had been speaking. I I remember. And maybe you've been speaking too much. <laughs> Probably no. Bless them. Yabba yabba yabba. That's Oh, also, that's why you end up feeling the effects of the alcohol more mm. Mm. because you're dehydrated. But also, there's a lack of blood oxygen at altitude. There's just a lot going on here. This low oxygen level also diminishes the effectiveness of your taste receptors, which is partly why food tastes really crap, but also, which I assume probably affects your nasal mm. sniffy ones too, in terms of the whole farts don't smell on a plane. That's um, like a philosophical problem. What? what if someone does a fart on a plane but no one smells it, do they still do a fart? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, but hang on. <laughs> Solved it yeah. instantly. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, so I have a small apology to make, actually. Oh. Because I've been peddling a myth for a very long time. Is um, this about the organs? <laughs> Marie, I've told so many people that. I've been t- I, someone told me, right, that apparently cabin crew are like not viable organ donors because of the expansion and compression of their organs all the time and it does so much damage that they're not allowed to donate organs someone told me that and I have spread it far and wide I have spread it so far and wide to be fair it isn't it's like an urban myth like it is okay I didn't just pull it out of my booty like it's around but um apparently it's absolute bullshit Mm. um but I did find out that um (laughs) 
cancer rates in flight personnel are slightly higher than the rest of the population. And doctors don't know if that's from cosmic rays or jet lag and the disruption of circadian rhythms and the, the stress on the body. So cosmic rays is as you get nearer effectively space and particularly nearer to the North Pole, you get like radiated Whoa. by um, space rays. Wow. Cosmic rays, what a what a word term. Yeah. Now I'm going to talk about like time zones. Oh, um, please. This blows my mind. Right. This is where I went down a bit of a rabbit hole and actually spent way too long trying to get my head around a lot of stuff. But first, I found a few of the worst flights that you can take for jet lag. So Tokyo to LA crosses nine time zones. <sighs> And it crosses the international date line, which I'll come to later, meaning that you arrive before you left. So a flight departing at 5pm on a Thursday will arrive at 11am the same day. But then get this one, which is even more extreme. Auckland to... Now, it's a small island called... (laughs) (laughs) N-I-U-E. How do you pronounce that? N-I-U-E. Yeah. Nui? No idea. Oh, the she blows. Um, so this, that's Nui is a small island northeast of New Zealand, and it's in the South Pacific Ocean, and it's very close to the international dateline. So the flight itself is only three and a half hours, but if you left Auckland at ten a.m., you would arrive on the island at one thirty p.m. the previous day. What? How? I don't get it. Right. So I. I don't believe it. I tried to really get my head around the international dateline because in its simplest form it makes sense but when you start thinking about it more and more it it really kind of starts to fall apart in your brain so the prime meridian runs down from the north pole to the south pole and that's the one that cuts through greenwich on its path so that's where greenwich mean time comes from um, and that was actually chosen in 1844 because railway and communication channels were expanding and there needed to be an international time standard because prior to this every town in the world kept its own local time so you'd look at the clock in the center of town and towns you know a few counties over or whatever would be like 15 minutes different like you just wow. you would just kind of work it out yourself what you were doing which is amazing so that was 1844 the, the prime meridian was chosen. So that prime meridian is zero degrees on the longitudinal scale. And then if you travel west from there, you go back one hour every 15 degrees and forward 24 when you cross the international dateline and then traveling east is the reverse of that. So if it's 6 p.m. in Greenwich on Sunday the 25th of December, it's 6 a.m. the same day, 100 degrees west from there, and 6 a.m. on Monday the 26th, 100 degrees east. It's, it's absolutely mind-boggling. I can't actually hear what you're saying. So it's... Yeah, I, 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 there's just... It's all Greek to me. Basically, because we invented the, the, the construct of time itself, and this is where it gets really confusing, you're sort of... Obviously, the, the, the world is turning on its axis anyway, and that's creating the shadow that causes day and night. And we've put in these increments going round, and at some point, if you're chasing it going back and back and back... You can't just keep doing that because you're just going to end up in a time vortex. So you suddenly have to jump forward 24 hours to make up for what you've lost. And that's where the line goes down on the other side. And that's what happens. But obviously on where we are on zero degrees, it doesn't really make a difference if you go to France, it's two hours later or whatever, you know. But on the other side, if you cross that line, you're going into a different day. It doesn't mean that the light has changed or anything like that. It's just the, the, the day that you're calling it is different. Well, bravo for an explanation on that yeah yeah, I hope it made sense which it's, makes it's, sense it's very 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 
very confusing. What's also interesting is that clocks as we know them were sort of invented in Europe in the 14th century, but the 24-hour day comes from the Egyptians because they just divided daylight time into 10 and then added like an hour of twilight either side so that's where you get the 12 and the 12 oh yeah um so we kind of had it broken down anyway into that but it was just suddenly had to get a bit more specific to like where you were did you find anything about why i cry so much when i'm flying yes that is a thing oh being do you think it's because you've had some wine (laughs) don't patronize me (laughs) (laughs) because the alcohol does affect you no, I, that is true, and that might be it. But uh, no, actually, funnily enough, the one that I came off with no voice, I'd been crying, and there were no films on the flight. Maybe it's the gas pushing the tears. Yeah, I'd, I've definitely found that. I remember taking a flight once, and it, me and my brother were next to each other, and he was watching Never Let Me Go, and I was watching the Justin Bieber Never Say Never documentary which I feel really <laughs> sums us up and there was a point where both of us were just sitting next to each other in floods of tears and then we both got off the plane and I was like that's like, that's weird I don't really find it that emotional in terms of how I consciously feel when I'm crying that much in movies and I've had that jelly and I do cry at everything I watch on an aeroplane it's like everything feels incredibly life affirming because maybe you're doing this dangerous thing it's not really dangerous but it is bloody weird compared to what you do most of the yeah. time so you're up in the air and then like a stupid rom-com just feels yeah. ju- very deep mm. in a way that it's not because you're suddenly thinking about everything that means anything to you yeah in relation to being in a tin can that could come crashing come down. down yeah which is always on the back of my mind yeah so I thought I'd just finish on how to try and avoid it or get rid of it with a few little celebrity hacks as well. Um, <laughs> so it's pretty simple. Drink lots of water, avoid alcohol and coffee. I mean, what is the, the fun bit of a no. flight is free booze. Um, walk around the cabin and stretch. Um, probably people might think you're a bit of a dickhead if you start stretching down the cabin. <laughs> Use an eye mask to sleep if it's nighttime at the destination, which is interesting because I deliberately stay awake regardless of where I'm going what time it is and how long the flight is I will like I flew to Australia and stayed awake for the entirety of the flight watching films because I just feel like then you can go to sleep when you want to when you get there but you will feel really weird mm. but it's a, probably a really stupid method you just like films that's also true I do like watching really <laughs> nerdy like Hellboy the Golden Army or whatever um <laughs> Apparently, CIA operatives fast on planes to reset the body clock, which makes it easier to shift into a new routine. So we probably shouldn't be eating our little chicken pastas. I've just seen a really good typo here. Um, So these are what some celebrities do. This says, Margot Robbie drinks gina shots. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is ginger. Um, To boost her immunity and regulate sleep patterns. Um... Jennifer Aniston does a 30-minute run upon landing and takes a homemade salad with her on the flight. Does she also drink smart water and use well, this is the a thing. vino body cream? All of these are all quite... <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're obviously celebrities. Gwyneth Paltrow, for instance. Steams her vag. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, she sets her watch to the destination time zone in flight. That's just sensible. Yeah, that's But she has funny. a sauna when she gets there. You know, not all of us. Oh, come now, yeah. Gwyneth. And actually... 
The most down-to-earth one on here is the Queen. Of course. Who sucks on barley sugar Ooh. sweets. <laughs> Let me finish. <laughs> sucks on barley sugar sweets. And takes homeopathic remedies, which my mum will be thrilled about. Yeah. Well, that's lovely. Barley sugar sweets. Are those like the tins that you get in the car? Well, those are travel, yeah, those travel sweets. But I think barley, I guess barley sugar is a particular flavour. I've never known, because you get barley water. Like lemon barley Robinsons. Yeah. Mm. I don't really know what it, what it is. Jenny's, you just made a face like you're absolutely disgusted. No, I was picturing the queen on a plane. Mmm. Sucking off, sucking (laughs) (laughs) off, sucking at barley sweets. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, that mate. Mm. What, an to, what an image to go out on. Both of you looked so shocked at that little slip of the tongue. I was a bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> the way you talk about the Queen is very disrespectful. I do apologise, Your Majesty. How do you know when Jaws is in a good mood? <gasps> yes, I'm going to talk about Jaws today. The 1975 thriller, horror, slasher adventure? Slasher? Slasher? Can you slash with a tooth? Oh. Well, it's just bloody, isn't it? Bloody mm. good. Some say. Well, a lot say. For lots of reasons. Um, <laughs> a little shoulder. I, I keep kind of shimmying today. <laughs> very sassy. I'm feeling very shimmyish. Yes, so the 1975 film by Steven Spielberg, based on the 1974 book by Peter Benchley. Um, this is crazy. Steven Spielberg was... 28 I think when it came out I was watching an interview with him during the production and he was 26 in that and he this was his second major motion picture wow um, after the Sugarland Express I mean that just depressed me because yeah. what have I done yeah oh my god don't get me started I went to see Matilda the Musical the other day right slight tangent and uh, I was very hormonal but I was so <laughs> close to tears at the end thinking about how proud you'd be as one of their parents watching them. They're just so full of promise. And then you get to me and it's just like, oh, another day. No, but that kind of that feeling of like, what have I done? But also being like, you guys are great. And I loved it. You've also done lots of things. Thanks, Marie. Yeah, you have. But no. I wasn't a child star. None of us were. But I think there's something pretty and devastating also, about being a child star yeah that, I did think they have a hard time you, yeah you're ever going to get this high again yeah exactly always mm. chasing it for the rest of their lives yeah. and being unfulfilled there was one little blonde girl that was so talented that like she can't have been more than seven and she was just smashing out these absolutely insane dance routines like she really was so fluent in the language of dance Anyway. Do you want to carry on talking to, about young girl? I'll save that for M. <laughs> <laughs> My moment uh, with Matilda. Well, just some some brief facts Ooh. about the movie, which is really all I'm going to talk about. It is in the in the most recent 100 greatest movies of all time, according to Empire. It rates number six, which I think is out of 100. 
in the top 100 <laughs> greatest movies of all time. Oh, sorry. Okay, yes, I'm with you. I, I, I was still thinking about Matilda the Musical. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to just picture a, a hundred Matildas and she's the sixth Matilda in the hundred Matildas. Okay. Jaws is, sorry. Which is also terrifying. confusing. <laughs> Have you ever thought at any particular level about how the film Jaws is called Jaws, but it's not the shark's name? What's the shark actually called? Well, there is no name, but oh. I've just always felt like Jaws was the name of the shark and then only in kind of thinking about it more I realised that's not the name of the shark, that's just the name of the film. Is yeah. It, but don't they call it Jaws in the film? No. Here comes Jaws. <laughs> Have you seen the film? Yeah. <laughs> I think I've seen all of them. It had a budget, well, it had a oh, an intended budget of $4 million, which is nothing in this day and age. Mm. It went way over budget, went up to $9 million. Still sounds like absolutely peanuts. What Com- was costing all that money? Because there's not that much going on in it. Well, I'm glad you asked. Basically, no one, <laughs> no one had ever shot a feature film at sea before and ah. they had no idea how chaotic it was going to be. Right. They hadn't anticipated for the very quickly changing environmental factors and simple things just took blooming ages to do. Things like setting up a camera, by the time they'd set it up, the boat might spin around and be facing the other way. Like, you have so little control on the ocean. And I was watching a clip. This British journalist went to go and interview Spielberg and was out on the boat with him one day. And they're filming a scene. Are you familiar with the film? I should mention quickly what the plot is at this Mm, point. Yeah. Plot is the island of Amity, which is fictional. It was all shot on Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. It is terrorised by a sort of man-eating, vengeful great white shark and its chaos. And the mayor of the town wants to keep the beaches open for financial reasons and the police chief, Brody, Mm. wants to shut them down. So there's also a political element at play. Mm -hmm. Um... And then the police chief and a shark expert called Hooper and then this old crazy fisherman called Quint, who's based on a real man who I'll talk about shortly, go out on a boat to find the shark and kill the shark. But the mm-hmm. shark is not called Jaws. It's just a shark. <laughs> so back to what I was saying. <laughs> in this in this scene that they were filming, there's a bit where Brody and the shark expert Hooper are investigating a small boat where this fisherman's gone missing and one of them has to jump into the water to get a look at the boat and he does it and it goes wrong but obviously it then takes half an hour for him to change costume redo makeup and by the time he's done that the light has faded so they have to just do it the next day that kind of thing when you're dealing with water you're getting wet clothes yeah do you know what I mean yeah now another incredible mistakes that they made was basically initially the producers of the film thought they could train a great white shark (laughs) no yes but I think quite briefly and then were like oh definitely not so they had the the art department created (laughs) oh my god three pneumatically powered great white shark lookalikes and they were about 25 foot long each, each of these three and they were all called Bruce after Steven Spielberg's lawyer Bruce Raymer which is why the shark in Finding Nemo is called oh, Bruce. Bruce. Oh, no way. That's Bruce. a little nod to Jaws. So basically, they had these three sharks and no one had thought in designing them about the fact that it was 
the ocean and it was salt water. They'd all been designed for fresh water. And what happens when you put, I mean, I am not a scientist, but apparently, as Spielberg says, when you put pneumatically powered sharks into the water, electrolysis happens, which basically wreaks havoc on all of the functioning of these sharks. And not just, it wasn't just electrolysis, there was bad weather affected how they functioned the pneumatic hoses were taking on salt water they were getting tangled up in forests of seaweed the Mm. skin of the sharks was made of a non-absorbent neoprene foam and as soon as it got into the water the sharks would start ballooning (laughs) (laughs) told you I was going to get the word ballooning in so they were a complete nightmare basically they just couldn't really use them so you see at the end of Jaws when they have that final yeah. big encounter with the shark, you that is one of the models. But basically the rest of it, the fact that the project overran so much allowed Spielberg to kind of figure out the script a bit and rework it. And he ended up intentionally omitting visuals of the shark mm. and implying more, like hinting at it with different techniques and that's really why we have the film that we have today, mm, which is arguably what makes it so great. And yeah. so scary. Yeah. And so scary. And I think Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock, praised him for his kind of cinematic genius, which probably wouldn't have been so apparent had the sharks done their job. Especially if they were sort of ballooning. Yeah, um, the three Bruces. squeaking. The three Bruces. <laughs> the three balloony Bruces. But they did, so they did film some bits with real sharks. They did that in Australia. And someone had this idea... That so Hooper, who plays the marine biologist in the film, uh, goes down in a cage in the film, as you may remember. And they th- and someone had this idea they could hire a little actor to go into a little cage, and then have a real like a large, great oh, white shark that proportionally it would look like an absolutely fucking massive shark. So Steven Spielberg was literally spent a day auditioning little actors. And this one guy came in covered in blood and he was like, whoa, are you okay? What's happened? And this this guy had crashed his car outside the studio. This was in LA that this was happening and literally ran out of his car because he wanted the job so badly. And Steven Spielberg thought, well, if this guy has jumped out of a car wreck to get here covered in blood obviously injured just to get this role in a movie and he can scuba dive that was the the basic thing they needed this person to be able to do he was like well obviously he's amazing he's brave and he he really wants the role so he hired him but this guy couldn't scuba dive (laughs) and they they filmed all these scenes with him in the cage and then basically I think they got the perfect shot and it turned out he wasn't in the cage he was hiding in the cabin of the boat (laughs) Oh my god. So I'm not sure how much of that they were able to use. But any of the kind of more realistic shark moments that you see in the movie are filmed in Australia. Right. So at the box office it made four hundred and seventy two million dollars. Wow. And um, that nine million budget doesn't look so bad now, does it? Mm-hmm. Doesn't. It was like the highest grossing movie of all time up to that point and was only overtaken by Star Wars two years later in 1977 and it was the kind of prototype for the summer blockbuster it was the first film that was um, treated that way it became the kind of business model in Hollywood marketing a film like an adventure or action film in that way they put it in more cinemas than they'd ever put 
a single film and they put it in over 450 cinemas in the US, which sounds like nothing now, and get, did this massive marketing campaign and people went nutty for it. It was called Jaws Mania. Mm. Swept the nation with fear. I just want to say one thing. So the character Quint, who's the kind of crazy fisherman in the movie, and as I mentioned, he was based on a man from Montauk, New York, called Frank Mundus, who in 1964... So Peter Benchley, who wrote the novel Jaws, um, had based the story sort of around the activities of Frank Mundus, who was a, a shark hunter who later became a shark conservationist. His words on the film, I loved. He said, it was the funniest and stupidest movie I've ever seen because too many stupid things happened in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's that what I'll say like about podcast. the podcast. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Before I talk about the effects <laughs> of the film on the shark community and mm. on society... On the shark community. I just oh. got to mention John Williams, because mm. obviously Jaws wouldn't be Jaws without mm. that infamous... It's not infamous. It's a very famous, it's just a good thing, on his, his score, which is basically just consists of two notes. Mariko, you're a musician. Can you guess what they are? Oh, A... No. D. No. <laughs> F sharp. There is an F sharp. It yes. goes E, E, F or E, F sharp. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I actually listened to it on the way here walking through Soho. I had it really loud in my ears and it made everyone look like a shark. really evil. Um, he won the Academy Award for the score and he described it, Williams did, as grinding away at you just as a shark would do, instinctual, restless, unstoppable. But when he first played it to Steven Spielberg, who they were good friends and they'd worked together on the Sugarland Express and they've since worked together on almost all of Spielberg's films, bar a few, Spielberg thought it was a joke and he just laughed. <laughs> Which I can sort of see why. I mean, you're preparing this big movie and someone comes at you with two notes and the way they scored it is sort of conditioning the audience to expect the shark when you hear this... Yeah. music but then they kind of exploit that association by then pulling it away and revealing the shark without that musical introduction <sighs> and that's how you scare people Ooh. the effect of jaws on sharks is big <laughs> and also on the way that we the way that we feel about sharks marika you've already said the reason you're scared of flying is in case you basically get in the ocean and eaten by a shark is that kind it of good? adds a certain frisson to the, the <laughs> flight for sure it's definitely always been the thing I was scared of flying yeah like yeah. I, when I read the manual when I'm sitting on the aeroplane and it's like go down the slide into a shark's mouth the ocean is the only thing that bothers me yeah even though obviously it'd be well it's probably very it's pretty bad if you crash anywhere yeah but, I think I just prefer I also wouldn't want to be in the fuselage going under either I'd rather just be exploded on a mountainside, mm. generally. I think Out of a plane. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in Jaws, sharks, or one particular shark, was made out to be a mindless eating machine. But prior to that, I mean, there had been shark attacks. And I think 
in the kind of early 20th century and then maybe in the 60s there were a few attacks that started to affect people's ideas about sharks but before that they weren't really not much was known about them and they definitely weren't thought of as a, a big threat to people so was jaws the first big the first big film that had a shark as a villain I, I don't know exactly, but sharks were kind of used as an association with bad things, like... Oh, like the villains of James Bond. James Bond. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there, yeah. there are sharks around bad people, but I think as the main villain, yeah, Jaws yeah. was the first. And um, historian Beryl Francis says, the idea of marauding sharks became entrenched in the psyche of bathers around the world, creating a fear that the media exploited. And we see to this day, like Discovery Channel has Shark Week, which is just a week of full programming of shark content. And people, it's like, there's a kind of excitement around it, mm. making them this really like terrorizing creature. But God dang it. They're okay. They're, they're okay. Yeah, and they're listen to like this. That. So we kill 100 million sharks every year. No. They attack 19 people and on average kill fewer than one person oh. yeah. every year. Insane. Is um, that for what shark meat? Food? So shark it's fin. shark fin soup gets the gets the most publicity in terms of what they're used for, but I was reading um a piece that said that's kind of di- distracting from the from the fact that we're all we all have a part to play in it. Is it and from it, trawling? Uh, there's trawling is 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 a problem. I was actually talking to someone the other day who used to work on a tuna fishing boat, and he said because I was asking about dolphins, like how many dolphins they caught, and he said it's not dolphins, it's sharks, and no one talks about it because the way that we see sharks isn't. I think we think of dolphins as this kind of friendly, mm. nice animal, but mm. no one really thinks of sharks in the same way. Uh, so it is. It's partly for that. Obviously, the the shark fin soup is a massive delicacy and I think makes a lot of money but also now shark meat is becoming a replacement for tuna and swordfish and also this one I had no idea about their livers have a lot of oil in it's called squalene or squalene I don't know how you say it and it goes into a lot of cosmetics but you can get squalene from another source but most of it comes from shark livers. Whoa. But also, it's not just that they're being fished and killed, but, but after Jaws specifically, people got this kind of idea of being shark hunters. And as George Burgess of the Florida Programme for Shark Research put it, a collective testosterone rush swept the East Coast. And all these lame little men Ugh. went out to go and catch trophy sharks, basically. Ugh as a result of seeing Jaws and and villainising them. But some people say that there was a positive that came from the film and it meant there was a surge of scientific interest and it meant that researchers and scientists got funding more easily. Right. Um, But Peter Benchley, the guy that wrote the novel, has said, knowing what I know now, I could never write that book today. Aww. So... He's created a monster. But I'll leave it on this. You are more likely to be bitten by a New Yorker than by a shark. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry. That was the bonquette. Big up the shark. Big up the shark. And did Big you up know, the apparently, oh, in your grave. they're way older than dinosaurs. <gasps> well, there's the old megalodon, mm. which is absolutely bloody massive. Why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> I don't know. Megalodons are just like giant, giant prehistoric sharks. Yeah. So they were around the sort of Triassic period. 
that checks out. Which so we're not like ammonites and all those funny little woodlicey things, and you do have these like fucking massive sharks roaming the ocean. Oh, I don't, I don't, I big ups to them, but I don't, I don't, I don't want to be there. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be. The megalodons are gone. Yeah, they're gone. No, but even just, even just a great white. I mean, they're not even. Yeah, Do you like, remember right. there was a <laughs> there's a there's a shark in Iceland that is 400 years old. Yeah, I read about that. And the news article I read about it just put it in terms of how many or like moments in history the shark was alive for. And it was that's so, so cool, crazy, <laughs> crazy, crazy. Well, what a glorious time to be alive yeah to be alive first series that's a wrap thanks for the good times and the best this is when Will says he he didn't hit record on that one (laughs) (laughs) sorry Will thank you for listening to the first series of A is 4 we hope you'll join us for series 2 which will be kicking off with K in the meantime keep updated with our horrifically mundane lives on Instagram at A is 4 podcast and if you have any suggestions or desires for what we should cover next series don't hesitate to DM us or call 999 Nine. 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 Nine.